How does an illegitimate orphaned son of a prostitute and a Gileadite, driven out to the middle of a forgotten spot in the ancient Near East, turn out to be a hero and a judge? A foundering father who lost his own father, but got a lot farther by being a lot harder. What's the name of this man? Jephthah the Gileadite. His name is Jephthah the Gileadite, and there's a million things that we could say about him, but just you wait. First, we need to prepare for this story, because with Jephthah, the book of Judges leads us to some dark days indeed in the history of Israel. What seems to be another story of a heroic warrior turns into tragedy as the would-be hero needlessly sacrifices his own daughter and the whole nation apparently just accepts it. And then civil war breaks out, and Jephthah ruthlessly slaughters 42,000 of his own countrymen. And throughout all of this, God is silent. Questions flood our minds, but answers do not come easily. This is not the kind of story that we usually enjoy. We like stories with a clear line between good guys who do good things and bad guys who do bad things. The white hats and the black hats. Uh, Maybe, you know, the good guy is allowed to make one mistake just to make them more relatable or believable or it's just an obstacle in themselves that they need to overcome. It doesn't make them a bad guy. And sometimes we, it seems we even like our history books written that way. Some people are the good guys and we don't want to hear about anything that might tarnish their legacy. Some guys are the bad guys and we don't want to hear about anything good that they did. And if we take those expectations with us into the story of Jephthah, uh, we may miss what's going on here. Jephthah, it's a horrible story. Now Jephthah is remembered by the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 as someone who conquered kingdoms by faith. And it's true, he did. It's also true that he was a sinful man leading a sinful people. He believed, but God help his unbelief. His unbelief wreaked havoc on himself, on his family, on his nation. And it's not just a case of a a good man who fell into one indiscretion. The sacrifice of his daughter is the fruit of a rotten root that we can trace all the way to the beginning of this story. And the essence of the rot is an attempt to worship God as if he were one of one of our idols, as if he were one of the false gods of the Canaanites. The pagan gods that the nations around Israel worshipped, they believed their gods could be negotiated with. They could be manipulated, compelled even. They were limited gods who had needs that people could meet. And so worship and sacrifice is a matter of negotiation. It's a transaction between the worshiper and the deity, tit for tat. I make this sacrifice and Baal gives me rains or fertility or a good harvest. And this is how the Israelites seem to view their relationship with God in the prologue to Jephthah's story, which we'll find in chapter 10. Uh, If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Judges chapter 10. We'll start in verse 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 210. And the pattern is familiar here to start with. Uh, Before the judge is introduced, we read of the nation's sin and punishment that God gives. Starting in verse 6, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth 
the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So far, all of this follows the familiar pattern that we've seen all along in Judges. Israel sins, God punishes them through foreign enemies, they cry out to God. And so what we expect to happen next is God, in his mercy, to send a judge to save them. But that's not quite what happens next here. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. God says no. And this could be more terrifying than anything that follows. The people confess their sins, but God doesn't show mercy. God is angry. Is there any more horrifying word we could hear from God than, I will save you no more? And his words in that last verse, verse 14, are cutting in their irony. You made your bed with these false gods, you go sleep in it. We read on, verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. God said no, and then after that, in verse 16, Israel then puts away their foreign gods. It's as if God wasn't impressed with their words, so now they're upping the stakes and adding deeds. And how did God respond? Well, it's kind of hard to say for sure. that The text there is ambiguous. I think intentionally so. God becomes harder to find in the story. It says he's impatient over the misery of Israel. Now that, we could read that simply to mean he's ready to end the misery that they're suffering and send a judge, but he doesn't exactly send a judge. The, the people end up sort of finding their own, and God does graciously use him, but it's more complicated than that as the story goes on. It could also be that what God is impatient with is the misery that the Israelites cause for themselves and others. Or it could simply mean that God is impatient with this whole miserable cycle of the judges. He's displeased with his people's constant return to sin and watching them suffer under foreign enemies, with saving them only to watch them turn away again and again. God's ways are hard to find in this story, but one thing is certain, and that's that God changes the formula of judges. And as far as Israel goes, her repentance is not repentance at all. It's negotiation. 
They start by saying the right thing. We sinned, here's how. No excuses, full acknowledgement of their responsibility. It sounds right, but it was just words. They're coming in, in a sense, with a lowball offer. God doesn't buy it, so they come in a little higher. They try doing the right things, and God still doesn't seem to exactly be impressed. It was negotiation from the start. It's what we might call manipulative repentance. We see that kind of repentance in human relationships all the time. I'm really sorry. Well, no, I'm not really sorry for what I did. I just want you to stop being mad at me so that I can avoid negative consequences. I can avoid any embarrassment and we can move on. So I'll try to figure out what it is you want me to say and do, or at least what's the bare minimum that you'll accept from me to say and do. Do you want that kind of repentance when someone wrongs you or hurts you? No, you don't want to be bartered with, bargained with, or bought off. You want them to say and do certain things because they are sorry for their sin and the offense that it caused, and they want to do those things. When we ask for forgiveness, do we really get that what we said or did was wrong, or are we just trying to smooth things over? The Israelites... I think, are just trying to smooth things over and get themselves out of trouble. We often do the same thing before God. Beware of making repentance into a negotiation. What does God want me to do uh, to forgive me and let me into heaven? I understand he's mad about my sin, even though I don't really see how it's that bad. But he's in charge, so he makes the rules. So what do I got to do, God? Do I need to say I'm sorry? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Stop doing it or just, you know... Uh, do it less and keep saying I'm sorry, because after all, we're still sinners, or, or do some good things. I mean, not in a works-based way. I know I'm not saved by works, but I also know that faith without works is dead, so how many works do I need to do for my faith to not be dead? Or, or what's that? I need genuine grief for my sin? Okay, I'll, I'll try to make myself feel sad. How sad do I need to feel? Uh, could we do some of those sad songs with the minor chords? Confession and transformation and godly grief, these are all parts of genuine repentance. But you can try to do them without genuinely repenting, can't you? The marks of true repentance cannot substitute for a heart of true repentance. To make it substitute is simply negotiation. And the trouble with negotiation is that it is gravely mistaken about our position before God. We have zero ability to negotiate with God. First of all, God needs nothing from us because God needs nothing, period. He is perfectly blessed and utterly self-sustaining. He depends on no one. He's the God who was and who is and evermore shall be. As Father and Son and Holy Spirit, He abides in the eternal and unfathomable Unfathomable. I can't even say it. The bliss of the Holy Trinity. What's more, all things in heaven and on earth belong to him already. There is no molecule, no infinitesimal quark in all creation that does not depend on his sustaining power for every nanosecond of its existence. More to the point, you belong to him too. There's nothing in your possession that God didn't already give you down to your own heart and soul. How do you bribe a God who 
owns everything and needs nothing? You can't. And even if you could, you're a sinner. There's nothing in your thoughts and words and emotions and actions that's not tainted by sin. Even even your best repentance is flawed. Nothing you can do in and of yourself can be acceptable to God. You have nothing to bring to God in exchange for his forgiveness. Nothing to bring for his mercy. Nothing to bring for his grace. Nothing. The good news is, that's exactly what God asks you to bring is nothing. Romans 4.4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 1 John 1.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You need not negotiate for your forgiveness because the deal has already been struck on the cross of Christ. What human beings could not offer, Christ offered on behalf of those who will simply come to him in faith. He offered perfect obedience, perfect devotion to God, untainted by sin, unwavering in love, trusting his Father to the point of death on the cross, bearing the penalty you and I could never pay in all eternity. His own body, his own blood, his life and death and resurrection. Your hope is not in what you can do, but what God in Christ has done already. Do you receive his gift? Do you believe his promise? You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's freely offered to those who will stop trying to buy it, stop trying to earn it, and receive it with thanksgiving. Faith comes to God empty-handed to receive what he has done to his glory. None of us has anything to offer that fits the bill, but all the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. It would be a joy to linger here, but we haven't even gotten to Jephthah yet. And in case you were wondering, this week I'm going to focus on the parts of the story that deal with man's relationship to God, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the parts of the story that deal with humankind's relationship to one another. So... I'll move fairly quickly through some parts of the story for now. In their uh, stubborn attempt to negotiate for deliverance is driven to desperation. When God told them to cry out to their false gods for deliverance, it turned out to be prophetic. They do look to other gods to deliver them, not the carved images that they put away, but false gods of earthly might and power. Verse 18, the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Enter Jephthah. And we get some backstory on Jephthah starting in chapter 11. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. 
Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So the backstory here sets us sets up our understanding of who Jephthah is. He's an outlaw. His mother was a prostitute, so after his father died, his wedlock-born brothers drive him out into a land that is ironically called Tob, which or Tov, which means good, and it's there that he gathers a band of worthless men. And when the ESV says that they went out with him, it doesn't mean dinner in a movie. It means they went on raids to plunder and to steal. The land's called good, but most likely it's not good land for farming, which means in an agricultural economy, if you can't grow your food, you've you, you got to take it from those who can. Got to live to eat, got to eat to live, got to steal to eat, as, as Aladdin said. And so, in a sense, uh, we can empathize a little bit. They're making their way the only way they know how, and that's just a little bit more than the law will allow. So Jephthah, of necessity, acquires some skills that are now of interest to the leaders of Gilead. We'll explore the dynamics of their relationship next week, Lord willing, but he agrees to be their leader, he engages in some trash talk with the king of the Ammonites, and then he sets off to meet the Ammonites in battle. At this point, there are two things to to know about Jephthah. First, as Hebrews 11 observes, he's a man of faith. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. God does defeat the enemies the Ammonites, through Jephthah. And it's astounding. Uh, Back in Judges 11, chapter 30, or verse 33, says he struck a great blow and conquered 20 Ammonite cities. One thing that does come out in Jephthah's exchange with the, the king of Ammon is Jephthah believes God has given Israel the promised land. He knows well the history that he would have known from the book of Exodus, the conquest of Canaan. He believes God will defend his people, and God does. I said Exodus. I don't know if that's the right book I just quoted there. But the other thing to note is that the Spirit of God did work through Jephthah. Jephthah accomplishes his victory through the power of the Spirit. 1129 says that the Spirit was upon Jephthah as he went to battle. But to clarify, Uh, The Spirit isn't working here the exact same way we think of the Spirit working in our lives. Under the New Covenant, the Spirit not only gives gifts and abilities, but indwells us and transforms us, enables us to put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit is not behind every action that Jephthah is about to take. For that matter, the Spirit isn't responsible for every action that we take either. And so it is that here, in the moment of triumph... Anxiety sets in as we see Jephthah making his infamous vow in verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. To make matters worse, where the ESV says, Whatever comes out of the house... Uh, you may have a footnote that says, whoever comes out. The Hebrew doesn't really distinguish between what and who here. 
And there are good reasons to suspect that hard as it is for us to grasp, it really should be whoever. It's true that ancient Near Eastern homes might have had animal pens as part of the dwelling, so an animal could have come out of the house, but the idea here is a warrior's victorious homecoming, and it just doesn't make sense for a goat to lead the parade. Um, That doesn't reconcile with my understanding of goats, and I, I raised a couple and have the trophy to prove it. I hate to say it about Jephthah, man of faith that he was, but it's hard to escape the conclusion that human sacrifice is what he intended. The most charitable I could be is to say that he deliberately put it on the table. St. Augustine in the 4th century speculated that Jephthah was hoping to sacrifice his wife, no comment. Someone else suggested that it was his mother, no comment again, since we see... Mother-in-law, we could maybe... No, I won't go there. But trying to make... We, we face things like this, and we make nervous jokes, but what Jephthah did not intend, this is clear, is that his own daughter would be the one to come out to meet him. In verse 34, it says, Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. This vow was unnecessary. That's part of what makes it so tragic. The Spirit was already upon Jephthah to enable him to win the victory when he made this horrible vow. And the vow was an abomination. Human sacrifice was not an acceptable way to worship God, and he should have known that from the law of Moses. This was an evil vow, and keeping the evil vow was entirely unnecessary. Leviticus in chapter 5, verse 4, again, book written by Moses that would have been available to Jephthah. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, or any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin." One thing that maybe is hard for us to grasp is that Jephthah was right to take the vow seriously. Because God's name is profaned if a vow taken in his name is broken. It can't just be set aside, but the law does provide a way out. And Jephthah could acknowledge his guilt and make the appropriate sacrifice. He doesn't seem to know this. No one in this story seems to know this. And isn't it interesting that Jephthah when he's talking to the king of the Ammonites, he displays knowledge of the law of Moses when it comes to the record of his nation's glorious military history, defeating foreign enemies, but he's woefully ignorant about what it says when it comes to the right way to worship God. He's got Bible knowledge on hand to condemn the Ammonites, but he doesn't seem to be able to apply it to his own sin. When people can find in God's word ammunition to throw at others, but no correction for themselves, those are sad days indeed. But there's a deeper misunderstanding of worship than just the nuts and bolts of oath-taking. 
Jephthah sees worship as negotiation, even manipulation of God. His vow is a bribe. Do this for me, God, and I'll give you whatever, whoever comes out of that door. Jephthah treats God like a pagan god. And the irony here is he treats God like the pagan god of the Ammonites, who worship their false god by sacrificing their own children. At the precise moment when Jephthah defeats the enemy, he becomes no better than the enemy. Even though the Spirit was upon him, even though he has affirmed his faith in God's promise to give this land to his people, still there's doubt. Still he fails to trust. And in that unbelief, he thinks he can give God something in exchange for deliverance that he's already been given. And his unbelief is destructive to those around him, to his own daughter. I believe that he did sacrifice her. Verse 39 says he did according to his vow. It's more emotionally palatable to say with some commentators that she became some kind of dedicated virgin, um, Old Testament nun, I suppose. She, she does lament her virginity. Yet what she's lamenting is dying without an opportunity to leave offspring behind for her family lineage, which was important in the Old Covenant since God promised deliverance through the seed of the woman and promised Abraham descendants that would become a great nation. Jephthah did to her as he vowed, and this is impossible to imagine. It's devastating. Why is this in the Bible? Why is the hero the villain? Why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? Why didn't he say something? Well, he kind of already did say something in his word. We find it hard that God is silent, but God so often speaks and no one listens anyway. I don't really know why this happens. But I do know that Jephthah did this because he saw worship as a negotiation to the point that his own child became a bargaining chip. He failed to see that she already belonged to God, that she was God's child first and foremost, and that it was God's child he was offering. He saw her like he seems to see everyone else, only in terms of her value to himself not in terms of her value in God's sight. And so he gravely underestimated how much she's worth. And we can start to see what I hope to flesh out more next week, that a broken relationship with God gives rise to broken relationships with others. And tragic as that side is, I want to focus on this idea of worship as negotiation or manipulation, bribery. I've read some stuff on corporate worship, by which the authors usually mean music, that says if we worship God the right way, with the, the right amount of fervor and zeal and abandon, that he'll come down then and do amazing stuff among us. If we worship God extravagantly, he will send his spirit because, in the words of the author, he can't help it. You can have that same attitude regardless of worship style. If we do the right things, we have the right model, the right order, the right worship style, the right kind of preaching, the right kind of church governance, then God will bless our church and our church will grow and giving will be up and we'll have perfect unity and no conflict. If we just do the things God wants, he'll do the things we want. He'll be obligated because that's the deal. Or we have the same attitude in our personal lives. When I pray, I'm trying to figure out how do I need to pray in such a way that God will give me what I'm asking for? How do I convince God to do this? 
dear God, do this, and I promise I'll do that. Fill in the blank. Or maybe God can fill in the blank. Or I'm just trying to find the right emotion or attitude or the right amount of fervor, learn the right lesson for God to give me what I want or take what I don't want, or the right amount of faith. Never mind that Jesus said all it takes is faith the size of a mustard seed. Or I think if I obey, if I keep God's rules, if I do the things God wants and avoid the things God hates, maybe God will give me the things I want and not the things I hate. If true love waits, marriage will be perfect. If I give 10% to the church, God will give me financial peace. If I do my daily quiet time, I'll have a blessed day. Or maybe it's in hindsight that we think, I did what God wanted. Why didn't I get what I wanted? Or I Why am I going through this pain? What did I do wrong? There are numerous ways we make worship, we make our relationship with God into a negotiation, an attempt to strike a deal with God. Negotiations and praise songs are often mistaken for one and the same. And at that point, it's for our good that God breaks the pattern to wake us up. The problem with worship as negotiation is the same ultimately as the problem with repentance as negotiation. God owns everything and needs nothing, and we have nothing apart from what he gives us. And that's the heart of our relationship with him, is receiving what he freely gives us. Yes, we are called to present our bodies to him as living sacrifices, Romans 12.1. But we do so not because he needs anything from us, but because from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, Romans 11. There's a world of difference between trying to get what I want from God and living by faith in the promise that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also freely with him give us all things. There's a world of difference between offering God what I own in exchange for what I want to own and living as one whose only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a world of difference between loving God and hope that he will love me back and loving God because he first loved me. In all these things, we merely give God the glory for what he has given us. The heart of worship is receiving from God because even worship itself is a gift from God. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes that the spiritual sacrifices we offer to God, they're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, acceptable through Christ, through Christ alone. What is sinful in our worship, in our lives, in our obedience is covered by the cross of Christ. What is good and worthy in our worship is accomplished by the Spirit of God working in us to will and to work his good pleasure. God delights in our worship because we are his workmanship. Our Heavenly Father delights in us because he delights in his Son, whose body and whose bride we are. Our lives are filled with noise, filled with fear, filled with distraction. Alarms are sounding, alerting us to enemies and dangers, real and imagined. We're tempted at every turn to the same kind of 
unbelief, the same kind of desperation that plagued both Jephthah and the Israelites. It's easy to trust God when things are going well, but when danger comes, we think we need a real Savior, and we'll sacrifice anything and anyone to get whatever it is we think we need. May God grant us grace to rest secure in the promises of the gospel. May we hear his voice through the noise saying, be still and know that I am God. May we come in the stillness with empty hands, receive the grace that he freely gives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the unfathomable mercy and grace that you have given us, that we can dare to come before you, the God of all creation, and know that you are our Father who loves us, who delights in us, who gives us good gifts. You didn't spare your Son, but delivered him up for us all, and with him you will also freely give us all things. Father, we long to be a church and Christians who please you, who honor you, and we ask that you would help us to be that people of God. Help us to come before you with a heart of true repentance and a heart of true worship. These are things that we can't stir up in ourselves, but only you can give. We ask that you would give these gifts to us of genuine faith, letting go of every attempt to work for what cannot be earned. Pry the idols out of our hands. Pry the vain attempts at earning salvation, the vain attempts at working for salvation. Pry those things out of our hands that we might cling to the cross to the cross alone and as a people who cling to the cross that that then would be evident in our lives as we serve you and serve one another and love one another and forgive one another because our hearts have known your grace and known your mercy we ask these things your gospel might be on display in us so that others may see Christ in us so that you may be glorified through us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.